0: Today's episode of the Hot 4 podcast is proudly sponsored by Lalaman Brewing. Lal Brew Nova Lager is an innovative new hybrid lager yeast strain from Lalaman Brewing. Belonging to the newly created Group 3 lager yeast category, Nova Lager exhibits increased temperature tolerance for faster and more forgiving fermentations. Produced using a non GMO yeast breeding technique, Lal Brew Nova Lager incorporates a paint technology which prevents the creation of hydrogen sulphide which can lead to sulphurous off flavours in the final beer. Additionally, Lal Brew Nova Lager produces a reduced level of diacetyl allowing for shortened storage times post fermentation Visit lalamanbrewing.com and get in touch with your local representative for more details. Lalaman Brewing, we brew with you. This week's episode is also sponsored by Charles Farram. Charles Farham have been hop factors and merchants since 1865 and hop growers for even longer than that. While importing a vast catalogue of international hops, they have also developed their own varieties through their hop development programme, set up to create wildly different aromas and flavours whilst also working closely with growers to produce varieties with good yields and disease resistance. Every year a new class of plants are set off on their journey, involving disease assessments, aroma assessments, and plot and brewing trials to get from 10,000 individual variety seedlings to one super successful variety for commercial release. The Farums family range brings to you Archer, Emperor, Godiva, Harlequin, Jester, Most, Mystic, Olicana, and Opus. They stock nitrogen flushed leaf hops, T90 pellets, and T45 pellets, And to ensure their hops remain in optimum condition, they have state-of-the-art cold stores at their sites in Worcestershire, UK, and in Yakima, USA, with their Yakima site being a staging point for quality checks and the safe journey of US hops to the UK. Charles Farham are fully committed to providing quality hops to customers at home and around the globe through their well-hopped quality program. And did you know they also supply yeast, malt, fruit purees, and other brewing products. Get one delivery and one invoice. The range and product specifications can be found on their website, charlesfarram.co.uk. If you'd like more information or expert advice on the different uses, applications, and recipes, one of their technical advisors will be really happy to help. Visit charlesfarram.co.uk. That's charlesfarram.co.uk for more details and to connect with one of their teams. I'm Nick Law and you're listening to the Hop Forward podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hop Forward is a show entirely dedicated to the craft beer industry, featuring interviews, discussions and stories from the whole supply chain from grain to glass. So grab yourself a beer and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business. Hello, Hop Nerds, and welcome to another sesh on the Hot Four podcast. The year is 1998. Britpop has died, the Spice Girls are all over the telly, and I'm experiencing my newfound freedom by drinking down the local pubs and clubs of the Steelworks Valley where I grew up. Straddling the edge of Sheffield and Barnsley, the working-class township of Stocksbridge was once famous for pioneering and manufacturing, wait for it, Paragon Umbrella Frames, which were sold and distributed worldwide. I mean, come on! Other than that, Stocksbridge really has nothing much to boast about. Perhaps except its working men's and social clubs. In the late 90s, me and my friends Dan and Mark would often do a pub crawl of the local pubs and social clubs in the valley, drinking pints of Tetley, Carling, or even dodgy cocktails involving something sweet like Malibu or Bailey's. While I can look back on those days somewhat romantically, in the uncomfortable way you'd remember some extremely awkward crush you had as a spotty teenager, these days it's easy to forget what attracted me to those clubs in the first place. Perhaps it was the rough, smoky atmosphere, or the desperate hope that I might be lucky and pull a bird, as the lingo went back then. Maybe I look back at those late teenage drunken antics, like the time my friend Dan profaned and desecrated the nativity scene outside the local Catholic church, with some kind of nostalgia for a bygone era, or associate the clubs with a particular time in my life where me and my friend Mark would talk incessantly about our mutual love of the band Queen. Since then, though, with the exception of doing the old Dre run, I haven't stepped foot in a social club for quite some time. For me, these are a product of a bygone era relegated to the past. I would imagine a lot of people listening to this might say the same thing, and yet my curiosity was recently evoked when I saw a venue near Kelham Island, a popular food and drink destination in the city, describe itself as Sheffield's newest social club and canteen, with dartboards adorning the walls, beige-coloured booths, the use of Cooper Black harking back to the 1970s, and a healthy mix of chicken in a basket and craft beers on draft. It's like. Stepping into a modern version of something that is possibly on the brink of being lost altogether if people don't club together and support their socials. Maybe I'm ready to step back into a social club for the first time in many years. This place looks pretty inviting, to be honest with you. Perhaps it's the height of middle-class snobberiness. Is that a word? Snobberiness? For me to take to Twitter and talk about my favourite rough pub, when actually the working men's and social clubs dotted around the city are vital community hubs for a vast portion of this country's population. Like, why do many of us associate social clubs with roughness? I'm sure not everyone does, but I know from my own experience and prejudice and bias, ever since those early days of going out down Stockbridge, I've associated roughness with these clubs. And perhaps you have as well. Who am I to talk about these venues and my favourite rough pub if I'm not willing to step into them on a regular basis and converse with the locals there? While we often talk about inclusivity and diversity within craft beer, does that really expand to those whom we may hold particular stereotypes of, such as people who call a social club their home? It's hard to get away from the social and economic questions that arise for craft beer and brewers when we start looking at working men's and social clubs, especially when the products most brewers make are often targeted at a very specific audience with a good amount of disposable income that are a certain age and live in metropolitan areas. As I was researching questions for today's discussion with beer author and consultant Pete Brown, I had to confront myself with some uncomfortable questions about my own pigeonholing of social clubs and the Patreons. Fortunately, Pete has done the hard yards in the research and has written a fantastic new book called Clubland, which tackles this topic at length. So make sure you go and order a copy of that today via your local bookstore or the usual outlets you can find online. And while you do, grab a beer and let me take a moment to tell you a little bit more about Hot Forward and the sponsors of our show. This show is only made possible by our supplier sponsors who support this podcast on a regular basis and offer support and insights to all our listeners within the craft beer industry, whatever you'll need. Today's episode of the Hot 4 Podcast is proudly sponsored by Lalaman Brewing. Lal Brew Nova Lager is an innovative new hybrid lager yeast strain from Lalaman Brewing. Belonging to the newly created Group 3 lager yeast category, Nova Lager exhibits increased temperature tolerance for faster and more forgiving fermentations. Produced using a non-GMO yeast breeding technique, Lal Brew Nova Lager incorporates a patented technology which prevents the creation of hydrogen sulfide which can lead to sulfurous off flavors in the final beer. Additionally, Lal Brew Nova Lager produces a reduced level of diacetyl, allowing for shortened storage times post fermentation. Visit lalamanbrewing.com and get in touch with your local representative for more details. Lalaman Brewing, we brew with you. This week's episode is also sponsored by Charles Farram. Charles Farram have been hop factors and merchants since 1865 and hop growers for even longer than that. While importing a vast catalogue of international hops they have also developed their own varieties through their hop development programme, set up to create wildly different aromas and flavours whilst also working closely with growers to produce varieties with good yields and disease resistance. Every year a new class of plants are set off on their journey. Involving disease assessments, aroma assessments, and plot brewing trials to get from 10,000 individual variety seedlings to one super successful variety for commercial release. The Farums family range brings to you Archer, Emperor, The Diver, Harlequin, Jester, Most, Mystic, Olicana, and Opus. They stop nitrogen flushed leaf hops, T90 pellets, and T45 pellets. And to ensure their hops remain in optimum condition, they have state-of-the-art cold stores at their sites in Worcestershire, UK, and in Yakima, USA, with their Yakima site being a staging point for quality checks and the safe journey of US hops to the UK. Charles Farron are fully committed to providing quality hops to customers at home and around the globe through their well-hopped quality program. And did you know they also supply yeast, malt, fruit purees and other brewing products. Get one delivery and one invoice. The range and product specifications can be found on their website, charlesfarram.co.uk. If you'd like more information or expert advice on the different uses, applications and recipes, one of their technical advisors will be really happy to help. Visit charlesfarram.co.uk, that's charlesfarram.co.uk for more details and to connect with one of their team thanks for tuning into the podcast you can find out more about Hot forward and the work we do within the industry at our website hopforward.beer or follow us on social media at hopforwardbeers and if you really wanted to go the extra mile you could leave us a review on apple Podcasts or spotify with what you think about this podcast for now let's crack open this week's discussion This week on the Hot 4 Podcast, I'm joined once again by beer writer and author Pete Brown. Hello. Hello. How are we doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you?
1: Very, very good, thank you.
0: Have you had a a good British summer? It's been,
1: apart from the obvious uh, impending catastrophe of global climate collapse, it's been quite good, hasn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, on the 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 world's doomed but on the upside it was lovely and warm yeah I, well there you yeah, <laughs> go yeah
0: maybe a little too warm
1: that that day that it was um like 40 degrees c which yeah. is painful i was in paris at that on that day celebrating my 20th wedding anniversary Oh, we anniversary. Kind of, thank you very much we were kind of jumping from shadow to shadow to <laughs>
0: so it would have been hotter there because like paris was like super super hot wasn't it
1: It really was. It really was. And we're there on a Tuesday, which is the day all the lovely air-conditioned museums and galleries are closed. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect, perfect. Exactly. Uh, Did you
0: have any good beers whilst you were over there?
1: Uh, I had a few lovely £9 pints of (laughs) Cronenberg. Oh, well. (laughs) Oh, the, the joy. Exactly.
0: Well, today I wanted to chat a bit about your new book, Clubland, Mm. and then talk a bit about beer in the context of social classes. So firstly, can you give us some background on the book and how you went about researching it?
1: Yeah, so I've wanted to write Clubland since I was writing and researching my first book, Man Walks Into a Pub. Because the history, if you're researching the history of pubs and beer, you you eventually come across working men's clubs. Um, and there was a little bit of history about them that I came across, which I won't go, we might, we might go into it later. But I was, it, it completely changed my perception of what the working men's club movement was all about. Um, so I have, you know, growing up in the North, I have a similar perception to many people, which is, you know, flat caps, chicken in a basket, smoky, <laughs> dodgy comedians in frilly shirts and stuff. But, but that's how work men's clubs were in the seventies. Uh, you know, they weren't like that. They're not like that now. And they weren't like that. Until the seventies, and it actually stretches back to eighteen sixty-two as a movement. And there's a lot more different aspects to it than than I was aware of, um, even when I started researching it. So, um, so I was intrigued by it, and I was trying to get it published. I thought it was it was worth digging more into, especially because there are no existing. Well, there's one self-published book about the history covering the history of working men's clubs, which is quite brief. um Which is where i an an oral history from people who have drunk in them all their lives. And I kind of was surprised by how little was there, uh, and wanted to kind of explore more. And I was working with London publishers, and every time I pitched it, uh, I would get some an answer like, "Well, you might be interested in it, but the only people who would read a book like this are old people in the north, and the problem is old people in the north don't read." <laughs> so, so it took me fifteen years uh, until I found a. A publisher in uh, well in in the in the lockdown uh, HarperCollins set up a, a satellite branch Harper North in Manchester and uh, they actually contacted me and said have you got any interesting books about the north or of the north or relevant to the north and I went, well i got this one and they they bit my arm off for it so it was great nice one
0: so why do you feel that the working men's club fell out of favour for many in the modern day and where do, where do you see it in modern society going forward yeah.
1: I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that happened to it. So, in in the seventies, it was kind of the the most significant, I would argue, and I do argue, uh, the most significant part of British popular culture, certainly for the working classes. Um, an awful lot of bands came up through the clubs in in the seventies and eighties. Most people you saw on television doing a comedy or comparing were were from working men's clubs, mm. um, and that was the kind of the peak of their their popularity and they were very visible. And the problem with that was that when when they became less relevant to people, the popular image was stuck in the 70s. So we, we thought they were still like that. And, and of course it wasn't. And then there's a whole bunch of different problems. I think one of the main ones was sexism. Um, so they didn't allow women equal rights in clubs. I and mean, Women had been going to clubs since the 50s, but they weren't, they weren't equal to men in the clubs. And women didn't get equal rights to men until 2007 <laughs> wow. and and I was I was the first generation I, I turned 18 in 1986 and that was just when the clubs started declining and a huge part of that was the you know things like the miners strike and deindustrialization mm. and the, and the the shattering of the communities that the clubs used to be built around um but as an 18 year old in 1986 I saw no reason whatsoever to go to a working men's club and you know women were a big part of it because I was by this point people like me I mean it's, it's totally normal now but my generation was the first where you'd you'd socialize in mixed sex groups there used to be this uh unwritten culture of separate spheres for men and women and so why would I go to a club uh if half my mates couldn't get in um because they were women mm. and then then if we were in single single sex groups we were in singles going out in single sex groups because we wanted to meet women for romantic liaisons and and if single women weren't in clubs why would we go there on a friday again why Mm -hmm. would we go there on a friday night when we're out to kind of hopefully pull women you know so so the clubs just seemed less relevant and then you had things like uh the the new wave of alternative comedy i was at school when the young ones was on and and they and people like that and ben elton and uh, lenny henry who actually did come up through the clubs just made that kind of club style comedy seem old-fashioned dinosaur irrelevant Uh, and they got sty- they got typecast as sexist and racist. and And there was a thing because a lot of those comics were sexist and racist because the 70s w- was sexist and racist. You know, racist comedy was primetime viewing on ITV at that time. And for most of the comedians, when society moved on and said, we don't really do that anymore, uh, then neither did the comedians. they they cleaned up their act. Uh, and then you get Bernard Manning, who said, "Well, I'll go the other way. I'll, I'll become more racist, <laughs> yeah. more sexist, more offensive to kind of clean up because nobody else was doing that kind of material anymore, or not many people. Um, and he became the kind of, unfairly became the figurehead of working men's clubs. He didn't actually play very many, many working men's clubs. He, he had his own club, which wasn't a working men's club. But uh, but he came to symbolise this old-fashioned, out-of-touch uh, sort of clubland style. And 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 then apart from that, clubs were very secretive, you know, it's guy kind of, you got to know someone. who was a member. A lot of the clubs that I've visited, particularly around Sheffield, you've got your Google Maps out uh, and you are going, you look and say, Well, it says the clubs here, <laughs> yeah. uh, but yep. uh, could it could it be could it be that blank box of a building over there with no signage on it whatsoever? Oh yes, it is. You know, so, yep. so there's a whole bunch of reasons, but uh, I, I do think the decline is is a shame.
0: Yeah, there's a few things off the back of what you just said uh, when you talk about Bird and Manning. I was I was thinking before you said about Roy Chubby Brown. And how yeah. I mean, my dad was really into Roy Chubby Brown, and then as a teenager, I, you know, because he was really foul mouthed and talked about sex, you know, it, it seemed like in the you know early to midnight is the direction to to go and and sort of tr- try my own hand at being a, a comic in front of all my mates at school using his jokes and stuff. Um, whereas fairly recently, um, Sheffield, he was supposed to play at Sheffield City Hall and Mm. basically banned him because there was such an outcry saying we don't want Roy Chewy Brown in our town. And it's yeah, I think it's it's crazy to think how much, uh, between the 70s and now, how much society has really moved on.
1: It really has. It really has. And there are clubs that have moved on with it. Mm. Um, There are clubs that have reinvented themselves to become more relevant to a younger uh, demographic. There's one just down the road from me, uh, Bethnal Green Working Men's Club. Um, which hosts uh, Queer Cabaret and LGBT uh, talent shows and and things Mm. like that, Uh, because it's in Bethnal Green, and that's what the community in Bethnal Green are going to go out to see on a Wednesday night or a Thursday night. Yeah. Uh, um, And and there are still clubs that are stuck in the past. And when I visited those kinds of clubs, everybody I met was over 70. And, you know, the, the problem there is that they are the demographic that are least willing to go back out after covid certainly this time last year when i was researching people and older people were very nervous about socializing again mm. and and if you're not attracting any younger people then you've got an empty club yeah. um and then i say to them well what are you going to do to attract younger members and like oh we don't know we don't know i'm like have you thought about putting a sign up outside saying new members welcome like, oh oh, we could do couldn't we? It's like like bloody hell, you know? Come on.
0: Absolutely. Um, This leads us nicely onto the next question. I mean, I don't know if you've seen, but in Sheffield there's now uh, like a modern social club and canteen in Neepsend, uh, next to Calamon Island, um, which borders on almost being like a theme pub um, called Neepsend Social Club and Canteen. And uh, I was going to say, I'm not sure if this is a one-off thing or whether elsewhere around the country there's similar venues that offer like a blast from the past or... Um, you know, without some of the more colourful aspects of a traditional working yeah. men's club like you've just kind of alluded to. But I mean, do you think that as a society, you know, I'll probably know the answer to this question from what you've just said <laughs> about the one in Bethnal Green, at least in the middle and upper classes, we've, we've perhaps thrown the baby out with the bathwater by not investing in working men's clubs.
1: Yeah. So I'm a member of a club called the Mild May. And we're in a very gentrifying area down here in Stoke Newington in North London. And 10 years ago, the Malmay was on its uppers. Um, but people like me have moved into the area. You love the area. You want to stay there. You want to put roots down there. And when they find out that the club exists, and, and often it's people who, you know, someone might hire the room for a, a significant birthday party. And so they invite all their mates. And it's always the same story every single time. People are going, I didn't even know this was here. This is amazing. Look at this theatre. This is fantastic. Oh, I'm going to hire this for my wedding. I'm going to hire this for my... And then, this, then they're in there for these events and they go, oh, God, how do we become members? How do we become members? And so now at the May every Friday night, it's new members night. And you're getting bloody hedge fund managers and people turning up to try and join this working men's club because they want to feel like they're part of something significant in the community and for some people it's an ironic thing for some people it, there's an element of taking the piss mm. uh the, Be- the bethnal green club i mentioned have a compare who's uh, a hipster bloke in his 20s who dresses up as a northern 70s comedian and does a bad yorkshire accent and just aren't and old people funny which you know they can piss off basically but um but some of it is sincere i think mm. and 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 when you see the May now it's really regenerated it's not the only one there's quite a few clubs um that the basic underlying principles of community togetherness uh with much much less of a commercial uh imperative like the pub has got um so if you want you can go to your club and just sit there and read the newspaper you can go and have a game of pool um you can just turn up and sit and chat have a game of dominoes whatever and um and you don't necessarily have to buy a pint and if you do buy a pint it's two quid cheaper than it is in the pub next door yeah. so there's definitely a role for that and then when you think about the uh uh the concert halls uh the the community spaces that clubs offer um a lot of those spaces are locked up and dark for most of the week um and you look at the way the last 10 years of austerity have closed libraries youth clubs uh community centers Mm -hmm. you name it and these rooms in clubs are just sitting there waiting to be used uh and i visited one club in garforth uh and they were just like yeah well we've got you know we've got mother and baby class in tomorrow morning then we've got uh, a band practice for this local band and then we've got um uh wellfulness and then we've got coffee morning the next one and they're using the space for all these community groups who don't have anywhere else to go and that for me is the future of clubs and that's why they're needed now as much as they ever were
0: yeah i mean what do you think british culture will look like if we don't invest in these clubs and these spaces
1: i mean it's you see it you see the answer to that increasingly uh every time you turn the tv on so you know the only people who can afford to uh form a band now or or write a book um or go into acting are people who are are pretty well off to start with and clubs offered working class people uh, a way there's a complicated relationship because clubs have this kind of this tall poppy syndrome where anyone anyone who's like oh you think you're better than us you kind of get shot down Hmm. and so this this is what makes the club comic or the club singer such a such a notoriously uh sort of difficult and daunting aspect and i i spoke to people like les dennis and bernie clifton about how how difficult it was to play the club circuit but if you look at marty kane from sheffield who uh was brought up by a mum who died of cancer when she was 19 uh her, her dad died really early her stepdad se- no her grandfather sexually abused her she was working as a petrol pump attendant she was doing a bit of modeling and she couldn't afford the expenses for her mum's funeral. So she went to Chapel Town Working Men's Club and auditioned there. And two years later, she was one of the best known faces on television, uh, hosting her own shows and things like that. So the clubs gave people that route out. And the good club performers had that. So the thing about the thing about Marty Kane or someone more recently, someone like Jane McDonald, um, they've got the kind of glamorousness of celebrities, but they've also got the common touch. So it's like, it's your it's your mum's sexy mate or, or or something like that, rather than these mm. untouchable, unreal Kardashians and and people like that. Yep. So it's all like, all right, love, all right. Oh, anybody see Emmerdale last night? Right, i gonna sing a brilliant song now, and then they'll then they launch you to a song that reduces you to tears. You know, it's yeah. that kind of lovely kind of common touch halfway between a superstar and your mate down the pub. And and you know, without the clubs, there's not that. Uh so, so like I said, all you can do is you, you hear the accents with which you see, you see something like a, you know, a, a, an indie band radiating attitude now, and then they get interviewed and then you hear their accents and they're all,
0: <laughs> they're all Ian <laughs> yeah.
1: and Harrow. <laughs> yeah. You know, say with actors, you see, you see actors playing gritty working men's uh, sort of working class parts and stuff like that. And then you, you get the end being interviewed and they've got Etonian accents. accents yeah. and, um, and clubs when, when the clubs, so when ITV started in the sixties at that time, uh, the standard route into comedy or tv was you went to oxford or cambridge you went to footlights and if you if you were in footlights then you wrote to the guy who was in footlights three years before you who's now head of comedy at the bbc head of light entertainment and there's that constant stream of people you know all the pythons people like that Mm. it's oxford cambridge bbc and then when ITV started, you had these separate franchises. So there was Granada Television uh, in Manchester, there was Yorkshire Television in Leeds, and they had to create programming from scratch. So they just went out to the clubs and went, "Okay, you'll do, you'll do, you'll do." And suddenly, there's all these northern people yeah, I'll tell you. <laughs> getting onto ITV. So, so, and that, so there that you've got the start of ITV being a bit kind of working class and BBC being a bit middle class. And I think both have their problems and both have their strengths, but. Uh, it's only really exceptional talents, people like Les Dawson or Morecambe and Wise, who would flip between ITV and BBC, depending on who was offering the best contract. But for everybody else, it's like you, you're kind of slightly bored, slightly earthy stand-ups, and you're kind of cheeky, chappy uh, presenters and game show hosts on ITV. Then you've got your kind of clever comedy on the BBC. So you take the clubs away, you take away that working class. I mean, you could say you've got British, Britain's Got talented programmes like that now, Um but the problem with that is, so I'm going on very long here. Uh, you know, the, the problem now is that you, you get an audition on Britain's Got Talent and then you say, right, I'm now a star, uh, I, I now need an agent, I now need, you know, a £1,000 for a personal appearance kind of thing. Whereas the clubs, you'd, you'd spend, you know, Les Dawson spent 20 years doing mm-hmm. gigs at 50 quid a pop. Um, and then if you got a bigger laugh, he'd get a slightly more money and 20 years of that and then suddenly became an overnight success on TV and by the time you've played club audiences for a decent length of time you can do anything oh absolutely you, can, you know if a bomb goes off at the back of the studio you've got a one line quip about it you know it's just you can you can cope with absolutely anything and so we miss we miss that i think
0: well it's that experience isn't it i mean i was um recently listening to the audio book um, about Oasis from Tony McCarroll, who was their original drummer. Mm. And you listen to his experience of growing up in the 70s and 80s in Manchester yeah. um, and what life was like. And then, you know, his anecdotes about being in this band and out, yeah, g- going around, n- not working men's clubs, but going around, you know, some small venues and, and really mm. earning. Their stripes, and you think, well, no wonder you know there was a lot of right time and right place for Oasis. But you think, well, with that attitude and where they came from, no wonder people resonated with Oasis. Yeah, in in, in some ways, arguably, they're they're one of the last bands of that sort of era you've just kind of talked about, because so everything's kind of moved on um, in in a way.
1: I think so. And when, certainly, when I was eighteen and dreaming about being in a band, if you want to take that really seriously. You could you could claim dole and spend all week practicing mm. and then play four gigs a night. Sorry, four gigs a week in, in working men's clubs and in pubs. You can't really miss pubs out of that story as well. Um, but countless bands came up like that. You know, the jam used to um Paul Well used to live next door to uh, Woking Working Men's Club and his dad was on the committee. Right. So his so his dad would open the uh, the club up on a Sunday afternoon and let them rehearse in there. Mm. And then they started playing gigs in there, and uh, and they found it very difficult because they're trying to play their own kind of fairly punky yep. mod mod take on mod, and people couldn't going, Can you play my way? Can you, <laughs> can, can, can you play Moon River? And uh, but they, they they raised enough money from the clubs to kind of get a van and start playing gigs in cool venues in London. And as soon as I start getting interviews with the enemy and the Melody Maker, they stopped doing the club gigs because they didn't want anyone to find out that that's where they came from.
0: I'm just having visions of Paul Weller being like, "I did it my way. oi. oi. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, I read interviews with Marky e. Smith from The Fall, and yep. they started. From, he, he said that working men's club audiences form the basis of The Fall's fan yeah. base, uh, and, he, and again, he said uh, it's it's awful, terrible, but brilliant because you 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 play to that audience, and he takes them on. And it's like the difference between you and us is that you are white trash and we talk back. And, and it's that antagonistic relationship that gives you the fall. Um, mm. And so, so many bands. Uh, yeah. Tom, Tom Jones went from playing clubs in South Wales to playing Vegas in two years. And when, he, and when he got to these Vegas show lounges, he said, Well, it's just like the clubs in the valleys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not faced by this at all.
0: Oh, so, I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a real. Um interplay I guess between entertainment and clubs and you know what mm. people do, do, do and did for entertainment but let, let, let's sort of talk about beer in uh, working mm. men's clubs and I mean I remember um, going to um, Lowwood's working men's club in Stocksbridge or Deepcar to be more precise uh, where I grew up which straddles the edge of Sheffield and Barnsley Anyone listen to this and drinking copious pints of Stone's bitter? one well, Yes, you, you know. I mean, as a, a brewing podcast that focuses more on the brewing industry and, and brewers, mm. I, I guess two questions: Should independent microbrewers, who often make expensive beers, let's face it, be trying to engage with clubs like this and have products aimed at them? And do you think there's a, a stereotype? about the kinds of beers that a working men's club might serve and the kind of beers that people might drink there. And how how would a brewer navigate the tension between those?
1: Yeah. Well, it's an interesting one and it is worth looking at from both sides as you've, as you've outlined. So, you know, I think for anyone into their beer, the the worst, um, the the lowest of the low is a, is a smooth flow bitter, (laughs) you know, a smooth flow John Smith's or Stones, as you said. And, I went to visit Sheffield Lane Club uh, in North Sheffield um, because they sell beer. They've just put it up from £1.99 a pint to two pound twenty, oh, and they on, take <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and they take over a million quid over the bar every year. Right. And it's like how how does that work? How much beer mm. must you be selling? And I spent a couple of days in Sheffield Lane Club, and it's a fantastic place. It really is just so well run and and so accommodating. And I was drinking. £2.20 pints of stone smooth flow. And because they sell so much of it, it was all right. You know, it was nice. It was a really quaffable pint. It just mm-hmm. went down really quickly. And I do remember posting on Facebook about this uh, and about – because around that part of Sheffield, a lot of the other clubs that, have, have, that were around Sheffield Lane have, have gone. You know, the one where the Full Monty was was filmed. Yeah. That closed and, and all the others did uh, in that area. And it was mainly kind of gangs moving in dealing drugs um and then as soon as they're dealing inside you kind of lost the you've lost the club basically or the pub it happens to be a lot of pubs as well and and I didn't suppose how lucky we are to be able to just go out and have a pint of beer and how good even if how lucky we are just to go out and have a two pound pint of stones smooth flow and someone on twitter and on beer twitter said well I agree with everything you're saying except you can't have enjoyed that pint of stones because it was smooth flow it's like well, I was there, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I drank it, <laughs> and I'm telling you it was a decent pint of beer. Well, no, you're wrong, you must be wrong. And it's like, jeez, you know, it's like, no. you yeah, So we, I think we do have craft beer does, it, there's a big, big danger of becoming a bit of a, a beer snob with craft beer. And the whole point of craft beer is, in my craft book, I, I related back to the arts and crafts movement. And the thing that drove craft as a concept was the dignity of the producer and the producer getting paid a fair wage and having mm. control control of their end products of their work if you're going to do that then there's no way you can do that without it being significantly more expensive than the mass produced yep. bog standard equivalent and so that's the that's the complexity of craft i think it's kind of fairly democratic and progressive but it, but if it's done properly it can only be an expensive option yeah uh, and that's always been the true of anything craft just not just beer um but there is a space for it uh, it, it, it's all, you know, it, it, the, the simple answer to the question is it all comes down to who's in the club and what they can afford to spend. Uh, so the clubs I was talking about in London that I visit, uh, they've still got John Smith's smooth flow and Carling on, and the old guys who go there for the darts uh, on a Thursday, that's the only beer they will touch. But they've also got local micros in there, and I might be paying well, so I, I I might be paying four pounds fifty for a pint of Kernel as opposed to £2.50 for a, a pint of John Smith Smooth Flow. Mm. But in the pub next door, i was paying seven quid for it. Yeah. So, um, and it's a, it's a decent beer. And a lot of brewers around me are kind of fairly left-wing and progressive themselves, so they're members of the club. And so if they're members of the club, they want to see their beers being sold there. Mm. Um, and there's definitely a place for it, exhale Brewing, uh, behind the bar in, uh, in Walthamstow Trade Hall. Um, if there's a demand for it, there's a place for it. Um, but you, in an old traditional, in, in Sheffield Lane Club, I think it'll be a long time before they're serving craft beer in there. we yeah. but uh, <laughs> have to wait for the um, a kernel. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but but like I said, there's, the stone smooth flow is perfectly serviceable in there. Yeah,
0: there was a trend recently on um, Twitter amongst craft beer types who enjoy that kind of discourse about rough pubs, quote unquote, um, almost as if by posting about their favourite rough pub, it was some kind of badge of honour and um, having had a bit of a run in fairly recently with a rough pub myself who didn't like what I had to say about how their business operated during the height of the pandemic, Mm. that nostalgia was a little bit lost on me. But it did get me thinking, like after the barrage of abuse I received online from people (laughs) that call this pub their home, that there is a bit of a tribal mindset when it comes to pubs and the classes and beer. And so I guess my question is this. If, if beer or craft beer, quote-unquote, is, is meant to be this all-inclusive, diverse thing that brings people together and people say it is, particularly on beer Twitter, mm. why, why is it so divisive when it comes to people groups? Because it's, to me, it, it's still very much like where you've got your football crowd and your club crowd and your craft beer crowd and, and none shall meet.
1: Mm. And I, I try my best. I'm, I'm trying to, I keep meaning to say, I've tried to restyle myself as a beer writer, not a craft beer writer. Right. So, you know, I've I've got this piece I'm really keen to write about at the moment, comparing uh, Madri with real ale and the contrasting ways in which they're performing at the moment. Mm. Because I think that's just as interesting as whatever fruit syrup's being shoved into the latest Nipah this week. You know, far more interesting than that. Um, I, I think there's a tension in beer because beer means different things. So on the one hand, I've going back over my 20 years as a beer writer, uh, I've always been part of the crowd that says, I, I I will never say that beer is better than wine, for example. I I, I drink more wine at home than I drink beer because it's my off duty drink. But I do think that beer should be treated as seriously as wine. Mm. Uh, and, and Garrett Oliver from Brooklyn Brewery uh, has, has a great line on this, which I always either repeat or sometimes credit with him sometimes I just nick it from him, uh, which is if you go to France, you can go to a petrol station and, and get a litre of wine in a bucket for like two euros. <laughs> or, you, or you can go and spend $10,000, 10,000 euros on a on a Chateau mm. bottle, you know. And it says, beer should be the same. Beer doesn't always have to be cheap. It sh- there should always be cheap, affordable beer, but beer can be special as well. And and I, where I come across it, I see people saying things like, I wrote a piece a few years ago about a Brooklyn beer, which was on sale in my local for three quid for a third of a pint. So immediately people go right, three quid. that's nine quid a pint. That's outrageous. That's wrong. That should never happen. And I, and I was like, well, okay. The beer is 12%. Um, it's, uh, been matured in Pinot Noir barrels for 12 months. Uh, and it's got way more complexity and body to it than mm. a lot of wines have. That third of a pint works out as slightly more, uh, volume of 12% liquid than a one seven, five mil glass of wine does. You tell me a pub where you can find a one seven five mil glass of wine for three quid. You you know, you can't. So actually three pound third is actually astonishingly good value. <laughs> it, it, it's just that there's certain people who drink beer who will never, ever see it that way. Um, and so I get frustrated with those people because I think beer always has to be cheap. It always has to be one thing. Not, and it's because I, if you don't like it, don't buy it. Like, no, it shouldn't exist. It shouldn't be allowed. It's like okay, and then on the other hand, you've got the craft beer guys going, "Oh, cheap, cheap uh, multinational shit! You know, anything produced by a big brewer is always bad. Um, uh, we, we shouldn't be selling craft beer in supermarkets or spoons because because those people aren't good enough to to appreciate these beers. And I know there's other arguments about why craft beer shouldn't be sold in supermarkets because it undermines independent bottle shops. That's that's a different argument. Mm. But but you do see people going, "Well, I don't I don't want the plebs drinking my beer." Uh, and, it, and it goes back to bands again, you know, when the, the, the indie band that you love <laughs> yeah. s- s- suddenly gets in the charts and it's like, oh, I don't like them anymore then. Yeah. Uh, and, and the reason behind that is because you want to be cool and special and into something that other people don't like. Hmm. And, and I've seen that driving the craft beer trends over uh, the last little while. People, The craft beer people who were furious when, like, their mum said, oh, I quite like IPA. (laughs) It's like, like, no, you're not supposed to like it. Yeah, I I, I guess um,
0: two things off the back of that. One's a question, but first a reflection. uh, When you talk about Madri, um, when I was on holiday in Windermere earlier in the summer, um, I saw so many people drinking that beer Mm. and I'd I'd not really seen the brand before. So it kind of caught my eye. And I didn't realise how many like, pubs and bars there are in Windermere so we go thinking now oh, it's gonna be this nice kind of quiet holiday we're not down in bonus on Windermere we're in Windermere town it be all fine <laughs> and like literally the street uh, we were on was just off the main strip where there's all these pubs and bars and everything and densely populated and it really struck me that the amount of people drinking was obviously it was really warm weather just quite unquote <laughs> normal beers and it's it's very easy when you're in the craft beer bubble and you're a microbrewer in the craft beer bubble to think that everybody is making hazy IPAs mm. and drink sorry everyone's drinking hazy IPAs mm. when actually a very large percentage of the population are just drinking "quote unquote" bog standard beers you know like mm. the IPA mum you mentioned and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I guess my, my question of the back of that reflection is do, do you think more craft breweries need to create products that cater to the ordinary quote-unquote drinker because it, it does seem like through a lot of conversations i'm having with brewers at the moment that they're, they're all starting to double down heavily on the hop forward beers and creating a contemporary craft quote-unquote image for themselves Dude. because they're seeing large pack start to tail off a little bit and small pack increasing volume. Now people are drinking at home mm. a bit more and going out less cost of living and all that. If you could feed back to me on the back of that um, question and reflection, like your thoughts.
1: Well, I was talking to a craft uh, brewer a couple of weeks ago and he, and he said, uh, oh, we brew, um, we, we only brew hazy, juicy IPAs because that's what sells and that's what the market wants. And I said, oh, yeah, that's how Heineken decide what beers they're brewing as well. <laughs> <Burn>. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah. yeah. You know, you're no different from a macro brewer if that's what's guiding your business decisions. And I appreciate why, because we now have far too many brewers in the market and, and volumes declining and people cutting back. Um, but everyone's doing exactly the same thing. And and they're not doing it because what, what they say is, this is what people are buying, this is what everyone wants. And that's not true. What's actually happening is... This is what's scoring really big on Untapped, and so you go to bars that that rely on Untapped for their recommendations and things like that, and and that's what they do. But as you already said, the vast vast majority of beer drinkers in Britain are not drinking that style. And I go to some craft beer bars, and there'll be ten hazy, juicy neapers and pale ales, two pastry stouts. I'm like, and and, and and probably now a couple of lagers as well. To be fair. But they're like, have you got any uh, Belgian-style beers? No. Uh, have you got any traditional kind of British ale styles? No. Uh, have you got any West Coast IPAs? No. Have you got any stouts? No. Wheat beers? No. And it's like, well, this is not craft brewing. Craft brew is all about the amazing, wonderful diversity of beer yeah. styles. And the fact that if when you meet someone who says, I don't like beer, unless it's an allergy-based thing or a kind of intolerance, you can find a style of beer that suits anyone not now you can't if you don't like hazy juicy ipas you you're not welcome at the party yeah and and i just find it really tedious and boring and it's getting very difficult to to write about craft beer these days because it's boring it's yeah. and, and it's not it's not craft beer as i recognize it
0: i'm glad you said that because awesome along really um you know i love stout like stout's my favorite beer style and as much as i love a good imperial style you can only drink so many of those before mm. you're kind of crawling home. So I, I was out recently and I I saw the first pint of cask stout on a bar that I've seen in months, absolutely mm. months, even with some of the breweries around here that remain nameless, like you'll be well aware of, you know, big, large breweries that make a good range of beer styles walk in and it all just, like you say, ha- hazy IPAs and hoppy pales. And I'm thinking, where's, where's the stouts? Where's the diversity? Which leads me on to thinking about when I went to, um, uh, Smod fest which is St. Miles of the Desert's October mm. fest now obviously it was it was a lager based fest it was all like lagers but like I said to Dan who's their brewer like I said you know I really appreciate your beers because you do embrace all these different beer styles mm. you know r- rather than just focusing on the next juicy NIPA, you know and even a, um, they had a, a single hopped it was a cool ship Citra um, and I bought I bought kind of thinking expecting it to be like a, a hazy kind of IPA Actually, it was nothing like like it. It was just this really nice hoppy, pale that almost had like a, a slight. I want to say like a sourness, but it wasn't like mm. a, kind of an off off flavored. Like it, you know, it had been affected yeah. or anything. It, it it just had this slight sourness to it, and I was like, this is brilliant, you know. And yeah, you, you just don't come across beers like that anymore. So I, I totally agree about you know what you're saying about brewers being market led by well, that's what the people want. And on one yeah. level, as a salesperson, it's like, yeah, I get, you know, sales 101 is find out what people want to sell on that. But yeah, you, it is really no better than Heineken or whoever who look at those trends and think, well, we better make those.
1: Yeah. And I, I always talk about how I talked in my craft book about, you know, um, the value of a small independent brewing sector. The reason it's so important that there is one is that if you are, if you are, I, I shouldn't just keep saying Heineken, you could say any other and coas. A, B, and Bev, whoever, because um, Anakin, actually aren't, aren't the worst of the bunch. Um, but um, I I've, and I've witnessed this: you, you get a new beer, you take it to a focus group. There's eight people; five people say, oh, "I love this beer. Uh, I'm going to drink it all the time when it comes out." Two think it's all right. One says, "I don't like it; it's too bitter." And the, the brewer comes out, like, "Right, we've got to make the beer less bitter." It's like, why? Five people said, <laughs> five people said they loved it. And one person says he's not going to drink it. Yeah, no, we need everyone to drink it. It's like, well, no, everyone's not going to drink it. And those five people aren't going to like it as much if you make it less bitter. And that's the way they work. So with big brewers... No one was ever going to sit in a focus group and go, do you know what I really fancy? Something with intense floral, pine and citrus aromas, uh, with a sort of crunchy malt body, uh, and then a kind of quite assertive bitterness at the end. No one would sit in a focus group because no one knew they wanted that until they tasted in a US IPA for the first time and then went, I don't know what this is, but it's amazing. Tell me more. So, So you need people to come up with stuff and go, do you know what I'm going to brew today? I'm going to brew this, which no one's ever done before, or did, I'm going to brew a Belgian double because there's not enough Belgian doubles around. And most people around here have never heard of a Belgian double. You know, that was the spirit that founded a crap. The, the first people who ever brewed a Nipah, that's what they did. Mm. You know, the first person who ever brewed a West Coast IPA, that's what they did. The first person who ever brewed a pastry stout, no one's going there. Yeah, I quite like this stout, but could you put some more cake mix in it? You know, so, <laughs> you know, it's no one ever said that. And and the original, the originators of these styles were, were pioneers and they were taking risks. And that's what craft is for me. And then everyone else just followed them because they scored really highly on untapped on and raped right beer And that's just boring and lazy. I think I've probably made that point.
0: Yeah, no, you, you can never hammer that point home too much. Well, I've, I've got two, two last questions. The, the first of which is, what would you say the biggest takeaway from putting Clubland together has been for you personally?
1: Two things. Uh, one is the big bit of the story I didn't know and we haven't really talked about it, but I'll just kind of touch on it. and People can find out more if they buy the book. Um, was the kind of political aspects to it, uh, and that working men's clubs? Apart, we've talked about how they uh, helped people through in the entertainment world, but also in the politics world. At one point, there was you know blokes blokes leaving school at fourteen or whatever, working down a pit or in a mill, suddenly getting on a committee running a club, and then rising through the ranks in the national organisation. In 1922, 176 MPs. Wow. In par- in Parliament, working men's club people, uh, who, you know, so so they were they were kind of this vital conduit for um, uh, for the emancipation of working class men and eventually women. Um, mm. You know that is a problematic side of the story, as, as we've discussed. Um, and then the other thing for me was how much I've noticed this for the last two or three books I've written. Uh, how much personal stuff has started coming out since I turned fifty um a lot of personal experience goes into my writing mm. so unbidden it just comes up when i start writing and i realized that working men's clubs for me as as someone who it's a very very familiar story but as someone who grew up in a very working class environment um quite poor being the first person in my family ever to, to get to university uh, and then becoming basically a, a middle class. North London metropolitan elite <laughs> wanker, you know. Um, you, you, you have to you have to analyze that relationship and go. You know, when I was eighteen, I couldn't wait to get out of Barnsley. I went. I never wanted to go back again um, because Barnsley hated me. To be frank with you, uh, you know, because because I was one of those uppity people going. Oh well, I'm better than this. I'm going to university, and so the clubs are a, a real crucible where that sort of relationship is is worked out. And so me going back to clubs now. I the book massively argues for their relevance, uh, is furious at how underrepresented they've been, and in general, how working class culture is just derided and and sort of ignored. I had someone just tweet last week when I, on a tweet about the book, that said I was sued's corner, and it's like, why is it sued's corner? Well, because it's working class and it's a myth, it's just hovis land, and it's like, well, no, it's not. This actually happened, <laughs> this yeah. is real for people, and so I've got this very ambivalent thing where I think that is absolutely amazing, it needs a story that needs to be told. But at the same time, when I was young, I rejected it, and it absolutely rejected me. Uh, and so, that tension—a um, lot of people have been through a similar experiences to me of being born in a working-class environment, being proud of your background, and proud of coming from there, but finding yourself somewhere quite different. It, it, that's that seems to be the, that's really touched a chord with readers up to now.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it myself. But I guess my, my final question would be, what would your message be to any brewers who listen to this in relation to creating and selling beers for customers that aren't the stereotypical craft beer heads, just the the kind of people we've talked about in, in this podcast?
1: Mm. I think one, one important thing to know from a very practical point of view is that there's no centralised buying in clubs. Uh, every club buys the beers that uh it wants to buy and every club is looking for uh a better deal and they they get they feel they often feel patronized by the sales reps of the big brewers mm. who who assume that because they're working as club committee member they don't know anything about business uh and so they wait so they'd be very open to discussing stuff with someone who treats them with respect uh and and knows what they're on about and, and then it's about price if, if if there's a beer that you can and the thing is, I look at the price that some cask ale brewers are knocking out casks into pubs for at the moment, and I don't think it's that far off what clubs could be able to afford, right. except wow. except cask is not really the product for clubs, which is a different story. But, yeah, but yeah if you can brew a, if you can brew a basic beer cheaply, then talk to your clubs because you hit a, a whole new demographic that, that you're not currently talking yeah. to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for your time today, Pete. It's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I'm looking forward to reading Club Band myself. Um, when I finally got through Caitlin Moran. Um So how,
1: how can people get hold of your new book? Um, well, we had quite a good subscription to bookshops. So apparently it's in your local branch of Waterstones, our independent bookshop, that kind of thing. Um, it's obviously on Amazon. Uh, and every time I bring out a new book, people say, can I buy it from somewhere other than Amazon? Uh, and there's now exactly the same thing. If you type in bookshop.org instead of amazon.co.uk, then it's exactly the same experience maybe not quite as big a discount but you're buying your book from a network of local independent bookshops rather than Jeff Bezos
0: oh amazing
1: everyone's a winner (laughs) (laughs) or I'll just say also that if you if you prefer an audiobook for the first time I got to read out my own audiobook so you get these dulcet tones telling you the story amazing uh,
0: well it's that time again at the bar for another week of the hot four podcast don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for under the week. Cheers.